Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. It's 1918, and as the Great War grinds on, a deadly new enemy is emerging. This foe swears allegiance to no flag, and yet it will kill far more people in just a few months than all the world's guns, gas, artillery, tanks and planes have in the past four years. After pneumonic influenza takes hold in the Northern Hemisphere, it's soon putting millions of people in their graves. Of the populated continents, Australia alone remains untouched. Authorities watch and wait, horrified by the mounting death toll overseas, hopeful that they can keep the plague at bay. From October 1918, the quarantine station at Sydney's North Head, Maritime Gateway to the Harbour City, is to be the front line in this battle to hold back the deadly invader. Among those joining the fight is 27-year-old nurse Annie Egan, Her fate will spark a furor and foreshadow what lies in wait for thousands of her fellow citizens. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Modern pop culture delights in threatening or even destroying our world with apocalyptic plagues. Books, comics, video games, TV shows and movies open Pandora's box on a regular basis to unleash deadly contagions. From realistic enough superflus and Ebola-like diseases to more phantasmagoric outbreaks that lead to hordes of rabid killers, flesh-eating zombies or bloodthirsty vampires. But 100 years ago, humanity did suffer through an epidemic that sometimes had to feel like the end of the world. It's considered history's worst natural disaster, pneumonic influenza, known then and remembered now as the Spanish Flu. While Spanish flu has been the subject of increasing study over the past two decades, this cataclysm remains remarkably obscure, given it's the event that led to the largest and most rapid loss of human life in history. And the Australian experience is almost completely absent from popular consciousness, though that is bound to change in the centenary year of 2019. 
Pneumonic influenza became known as Spanish flu because neutral Spain wasn't embroiled in World War I. That meant news about the outbreak wasn't censored there, as it was in England, Germany, Russia, France, the United States and other combatant nations. So Spain's publicly reported death toll made it seem like the epicentre of the influenza. But the disease might more correctly have been called the American flu. That's because the plague's official patient zero was a US Army private named Albert Gitchell, and its ground zero was an army base in Kansas. In early March 1918, Albert, a mess hall cook, woke up with a high fever, agonising headache and burning throat. By lunchtime, 100 of the comrades Albert had been serving meals to the night before were also sick. Within weeks, more than 1,000 soldiers had the influenza and tens of thousands more who might have been exposed to it were shipping off to fight the war in Europe. By mid-1918, the pneumonic influenza was raging across much of the world. Over the next two years, it infected some 500 million people. Of those, between 50 and 100 million people would die, which was 3 to 6% of the world's total population. Unlike other flus, this one was most lethal to otherwise healthy adults aged 20 to 40. The epidemic's most severe wave began in the Northern Hemisphere in September 1918. Half the victims would die in the next three months. But geographical isolation meant the germ hadn't reached Australian shores. Yet, with the world still at war and unprecedented numbers of soldiers moving across the globe, infection was marching ever closer. Australia had known influenza outbreaks before. In 1885, a severe strain hit Melbourne. Dubbed fog fever because it struck during an extremely foggy winter, it killed 74 people in Victoria and would come back for the next few years. The Russian flu of 1889 to 1890 was far worse. It killed 2,362 Australians and claimed another million victims worldwide. But by October of 1918, it was clear from newspaper reports that Spanish flu would be far, far worse if it found its way down under. Thousands of people were dying every week in London, New York, Barcelona, Vienna, Bombay, Cape Town and other major world cities. Nearer to home, just across the Tasman Sea, New Zealand was already in the grip of the epidemic and people had started to die in Auckland. As a safeguard, all ships arriving in Australia were ordered into quarantine for seven days. On the 18th of October 1918, the first infected vessel, the Mataram, from Singapore reached Darwin and went into quarantine. On the 25th of October, the Niagara, a Canadian steamer, sailed into Sydney Harbour, flying the dreaded yellow flag of infection. Sydney blazed with rumours that scores of people had died on its voyage. Actually, the death toll was five, though 155 of the 567 passengers and crew were sick, more than 25%. Niagara was ordered to anchor at North Head, with the infected treated at the quarantine station hospital. The next infected boat was the Atua, which arrived on the 8th of November. Of the 163 people aboard, more than half were infected. As Sydney siders celebrated the end of the Great War, 
on the 11th of the 11th at 11am, a new war was raging at the quarantine station as doctors and nurses tried to save dozens of flu victims. 16 people from the Atua would die. But for sheer patient numbers, the troopship medic threatened to overwhelm the quarantine station. The medic had nearly 1,000 people aboard, most of them Australian soldiers and Italian reservists. They had all been sailing for the Western Front when the guns fell silent in Europe. Turning around, the boat docked off the shore of Auckland. Even though the city was raging with flu, officers were allowed to go ashore and to return to the ship four days later. Some of these men were infected, though yet to exhibit symptoms. More than 300 people from the medic would be sick with the flu shortly after the boat reached Sydney Harbour in mid-November. With hundreds of patients now in the quarantine station hospital, many more medical staff were desperately needed. One of the nurses who joined the fight against Spanish flu was 27-year-old Annie Egan. Annie wasn't a Sydney girl. She was born in 1891 near Gunnedah in northwestern New South Wales and raised on a farm called Roseville. The family had been among the area's first wheat growers. The Egans were also devoutly Catholic, with Annie the fifth daughter in a family of nine children. An amiable, happy girl, she was schooled by the Sisters of Mercy at the local convent. While three of Annie's sisters became nuns, Annie's calling was secular and she went to Sydney to study nursing. Living with one of her sisters in Annandale, she started her training at St Vincent's Hospital in Darlinghurst in May 1915. Annie passed her nurse's exam in June 1918. Proud, she went back to Gunnedah to see her family before returning to St Vincent's to start work. With medical personnel desperately needed to tend wounded servicemen, Annie volunteered to become a military nurse, likely expecting she'd be doing her duty at Randwick Military Hospital. Instead, she soon received a far more dangerous mission, caring for sick soldiers at the quarantine station. Annie knew the risks. A Canadian nurse had been on the Niagara, sailing to visit family in Sydney when the influenza outbreak began on that ship. She volunteered to look after the sick, became infected herself and died in a matter of days. Even knowing these dangers, Annie had to be shocked by what she saw when she walked into the quarantine station's hospital wards. As one of her colleagues would later recall about Spanish flu, I am sure others will bear me out when I say that it is about the most painful illness known to the medical profession. The disease struck with such dizzying quickness that people often collapsed in the street almost as soon as they felt symptoms. Sufferers were racked with headache and back pains. They became light sensitive, developed pharyngitis, and their temperatures soared to 103 or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The next three or four days were crucial, particularly for patients who developed bacterial pneumonia. Telltale signs that this had happened were two reddish spots, one over each cheekbone, as though they'd been anointed. Faces flushed dark red, the colour of plums, then turned blue and purple on the way to going black. Feet and hands darkened and these shadows crept along limbs and across torsos and abdomens. 
People could lose their hearing, sight and sense of smell. Insomnia meant even the relief of sleep was denied. Victims bled from the nose and mouth. Teeth and hair fell out. The smell sufferers gave off was said to be like musty straw. Death was usually then imminent, days away at most. Lungs filled up with blood and froth as people drowned in their own fluids. Terrifyingly, cases were also recorded where people would be healthy one night and dead the following morning. And cruelly, sometimes patients would seem to make miraculous recoveries. They'd rise from their sickbeds, appear to be again in perfect health, only to quickly relapse and die. In 1918, antibiotics and antiviral drugs were yet to be discovered, though an experimental vaccine had been developed locally. While such inoculation couldn't protect against the flu, it was thought somewhat effective in helping to protect against secondary bacterial infections. So, with their limited means, medicines and understanding of the flu, Annie Egan and other medical staff at the quarantine station did what they could for sufferers. They gave inoculation jabs and held a thermometer parade each morning in which everyone in wards and on anchored ships was tested for fever. They operated inhalation chambers where patients breathed in fumes from a zinc sulfate solution, which was thought to help sterilise the airways. Similarly, huge autoclaves were used to steam disinfect clothing, luggage and linen. Flu sufferers were given painkillers like aspirin and quinine, bathed and cooled, nourished and made as comfortable as possible as the disease took its course. To protect herself, Annie wore a mask, but proper care of and attention to wearing masks wasn't observed at this time at the quarantine station. By the 26th of November, Annie was infected. As her condition worsened, Annie knew the fate she might face. Six Australian soldiers from the medic had died since being brought ashore. Realising nothing might save her life, devoutly Catholic Annie's focus became her afterlife. Annie needed the spiritual comfort of having her confession heard and, if it came to that, the last rites administered. Let me have a priest, she said. A priest from nearby Manly volunteered to see her. He realised the risks and was prepared to submit to any regulation, even if it meant himself remaining in quarantine. But the federal government, which had control over the quarantine station, refused him permission to visit Annie. Letting a priest in, federal authorities argued, risked giving the infection another host and thus prolonging the plague. Over the next four days, Annie pleaded, but the government wouldn't budge. On the 3rd of December, she was listed as dangerously ill. Annie was allowed a phone call from the priest at Manly. I will say mass for you, he told her. You will be all right. That afternoon, Annie died. Bodies were highly infectious, so she had to be buried on site. Her funeral service was conducted by a Catholic nurse. Annie received full military honours, with a bugler playing the last post as troops fired a salute. Soldiers and hospital staff placed wreaths made from wildflowers on her grave, which looked out over Sydney Harbour. When the story of Annie's last days made the newspapers, there was immediate outrage, not at her death, 
but at the religious rights she'd been denied. On the day she was buried, the newspaper Catholic Press thundered. While the authorities blundered, blustered and bluffed, this girl, who, for conscience sake, was offering her young life to help secure health to the community and her fellow citizens, was callously permitted to pass hence without the consolations of religion and the rights of her church. Two days after Annie died, a requiem mass was held at Sydney's St Mary's Cathedral. The congregation of mourners was huge and included her grief-stricken family, friends from St Vincent's, the city's Catholic hierarchy and numerous politicians, both state and federal. Speaking at the service, Archbishop Michael Kelly called Annie a martyr and railed against what he called the federal government's impious refusal. From across the country, politicians, judges, clergymen of Christian denominations and even prominent atheists lent their voices to the protest. With Prime Minister Billy Hughes in London, Archbishop Kelly sent a protest telegram to the acting Prime Minister, William Watt. When he didn't get a reply, the Archbishop took matters into his own hands. He got a carriage, went out to the quarantine station and demanded admission so he could minister to the sick. Armed soldiers refused him entry and told him he'd be arrested if he tried to force his way in. But the publicity stunt had the desired effect and the federal government, now copying criticism from all quarters, backed down. From then on, patients at the quarantine station would at least have the comfort of their religions. On the very same day that Annie fell sick, the 26th of November 1918, Australia's state health ministers had met with Commonwealth personnel in Melbourne for a national influenza planning conference. It was decided that if there was an outbreak anywhere, the federal government would have the power to proclaim states infected and to declare land and maritime quarantines. Meanwhile, the states would be responsible for medical care, including vaccinations and awareness campaigns. A few days before the end of the year, Dr John Cumston, the federal quarantine minister, said the nation wasn't out of the woods yet, but we have every reason to hope that Australia will be left untouched by Spanish influenza. His optimism was countered by Sydney's tabloid newspaper The Sun drumming up panic with a headline that asked, Is it the Black Death? And subheadings that screamed, Terror at our gates! And Fighting the Goblin of Horror! The accompanying article was straight out of a horror story. If it is the Black Death of a thousand years, what causes it? Is it a germ bred in the putrefying bodies on the battlefield? Has it its origin in the use of human flesh as food? Has it come from the old breeding grounds of the Black Death churned up by the opposing armies? This was, of course, nonsense. Other articles on the very same page made it clear the disease was pneumonic influenza and that your best chance was inoculation and isolation if symptoms presented. But the idea that Sydney and the rest of Australia faced the bubonic plague wasn't easily put to rest. Even 70 years later, elderly Australians would talk of having survived the Black Death. As 1919 began, the New South Wales government prepared for the worst. Inoculations were offered for free, with depots established across Sydney at town halls, schools and parks, cricket grounds and army recruiting centres. But complacent citizens didn't get jabs, just like they didn't stock up on masks. There really didn't seem to be a need because 
the flu hadn't made it out of the quarantine station. While scores of infected boats had arrived at the quarantine station bearing hundreds of flu sufferers and dozens had died, not a single infected person had passed into Sydney to spread the disease. As January progressed, it seemed that the sacrifice made by Annie Egan and other nurses hadn't been in vain. There was even talk of holding a civic celebration for the medical authorities who had saved the city. Then, on the 27th of January, 1919, came the terrible news. Spanish flu had arrived in Sydney. Spanish flu hadn't escaped the North Head Quarantine Station, but had instead been brought into New South Wales by a sick soldier who'd travelled overland from Melbourne. Now it emerged that numerous suspect cases had been detected in that southern city in mid-January. These had been so mild that the Victorian government wasn't sure whether they were actually dealing with Spanish flu, so they decided to not err on the side of caution by notifying federal authorities. Now Sydney might pay dearly for Melbourne's mistake. Defying the November agreement, the New South Wales government unilaterally declared the state infected and quickly closed its southern and northern borders. Great fury was directed at Victoria, with newspaper editorials evoking the imagery of wartime treason. The noble battle which the quarantine doctors, nurses and orderlies made in the first line of defence has been in vain, said an editorial in The Sun, because those in charge of the second line blinded themselves to the facts and fraternised with the enemy by welcoming him under a camouflaged name. Setting its anger aside, the newspaper rallied readers to the fight against the flu. Let each citizen regard himself as a soldier defending his country against a merciless enemy. Where Melbourne and Victoria had failed, Sydney and New South Wales would prevail. From the 27th of January 1919, drastic action was taken in New South Wales to prevent the spread of the flu. Theatres, dance halls, racetracks and churches were closed. Summer holidays finished, but schools didn't reopen. Picture theatres were shuttered too, over the objections of cinema owners who had argued transmission of germs would be impossible if patrons watching movies were allowed to be sprayed by disinfectant boys. Hotel owners had better luck, for the time being. Pubs would remain open so long as there was 250 cubic feet of space for each drinker. Patrolling cops were puzzled as to how on earth they were expected to enforce this regulation, not least when multitudes of men piled into bars to guzzle beer just before six o'clock closing. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Complacent just a day earlier, Sydneysiders now woke up to the threat in their midst. 100,000 masks, the city's entire supply, sold out in that first day. Thousands thronged inoculation depots. Masked female Red Cross volunteers in white uniforms patrolled the streets, handing out pamphlets about how best to protect against infection and what to do if someone in your house became sick. While masks were now in demand, the majority of people were still too self-conscious to actually put them on. So much so that a man wearing one on a morning ferry from Mossman elicited cheers, giggles and bemused commentary from his fellow commuters. When he stepped off the boat and into the throng of Circular Quay, he was still the only person wearing a mask. The state government ordered that a week henceforth it would be an offence to be barefaced in public. Those caught not wearing masks might be subject to a £10 fine, which was three times the minimum weekly wage. Trying to cheer themselves up, people drew funny faces on their masks. Foy's department store marketed the harem mask veil, which, their ad said, transformed a hideous necessity into a thing of beauty. Be they fancy or funny, masks were horribly suffocating to wear in the summer heat. Smokers were particularly riled. How to puff away when your mouth was supposed to be covered? While Sydney became a surreal city, its streets filled with eerie masked figures, hundreds of defiant citizens were cautioned by the cops for not covering up. No doubt many of these offenders justified themselves by quoting none other than Dr Cumston, Federal Quarantine Minister, who had gone on record in Melbourne saying that masks were about as useful as face powder in preventing flu transmission. Down south, masks weren't compulsory. Then again, by now Melbourne was suffering terribly. Sydney's The Sun newspaper ran daily disease tallies that read like morbidly competitive examples of intercity rivalry. On the 30th of January, Sydney had 25 cases of Spanish flu and so far no one had died. Meanwhile, Melbourne had reported 483 cases and 39 deaths. While Sydney's infection rate was still relatively low, preparations continued for an outbreak on the scale Melbourne was experiencing. New South Wales had only 2,000 hospital beds, so authorities began reconnoitring temporary facilities. They checked out a cable station at La Perouse and a large skating rink in the centre of Sydney. Before long, hundreds of temporary hospitals would be set up in schools, churches, clubs, drill halls, courthouses and even jails. SOS cards were distributed so people could place them in their front windows, advising patrolling volunteers that medical help or food supplies were needed. Fresh out of quarantine, masked soldiers marched off troop ships and into the arms of masked wives and girlfriends. But you'd kiss a returning hero at your own risk. 
The Sun's women's page advised a new commandment be observed. Thou shalt not kiss. Meanwhile, purveyors of quack cures saw a gold mine. Newspapers filled up with patent medicine advertisements that were often designed to look like official health announcements or that claimed endorsement from leading medical authorities. Keeping the bowels open was considered vital to resisting the flu. Popular herbal laxative, Dr. Morse's Indian root pills, sold one tonne, that is, five million pills, in the first month of the outbreak alone. Nicholas Aspro tablets claimed doctors said it got rid of influenza within 24 hours. Pruno, billed as the great influenza cure, was an antiseptic throat pastille endorsed by popular vaudevillian comics Stiffy and Moe. Warns Wonderwool called itself the magic wrap and promised to restore circulation to defeat the germ. Ice Mint promised it would fight the Grim Reaper using Japanese menthol and camphor. Then there was Clement's Tonic for your blood and disinfectant Galimpta with its top hat wearing koala mascot and one particularly memorable tagline, kill it, kill it, kill it, kill the germ before it kills somebody. Bonox fluid beef, basically beef stock, was the quickest way to build up your resisting power. To the delight of many, whiskey was said to be an effective flu fighter. So was supposedly germ-killing clouds of tobacco smoke. Tobacco brand GBD ran a rhyming ad that showed a chap firing up his pipe on the commute. When homeward bound in crowded train with influenza near, just smoke a pipe a GBD and clear the atmosphere. In a bid to keep shoppers shopping, Grace Brothers and other stores opened free zinc sulfate fume inhalatoriums that supposedly made one free from infection for 24 hours. But while Sydney siders were more alert to the flu threat, when they literally came face to face with the flu, curiosity often overrode concern. Sydney siders seeing a sufferer suddenly drop to the street would crowd around the stricken person rather than running a mile. Yet, even with inoculations offering limited protection, people defying mask regulations, quack medicines and treatments offering a false sense of security, and curiosity putting people at risk of infection, somehow, the state was winning the war against the flu. Towards the end of February, Victoria's death toll stood at nearly 500, while New South Wales's death toll was just 13. Then, on the last day of summer... Sydney reported no new cases. The battle appeared over and the state government eased regulations so masks were only required on public transport. On the 1st of March, in The Sun, under the headline The Plague Kept Out, D.A. Walsh, Professor of Pathology at the University of Sydney, explained New South Wales's success and offered a vote of thanks to the Health Department for saving the state. An even bigger headline announced, Sydney breathes again. Yet, as soon as the city reopened for business, the flu made a comeback and 64 people were hospitalised in the first week of March. Disturbingly, authorities now estimated that for every serious hospital case, there might be 20 more sufferers out there in the community. But the death rate was still so very low that an editorial writer for The Sun was prompted to ask, is it the real thing? 
and suggested that what had hit the city was so mild it might not be Spanish influenza at all. Tempting fate, the journalist wrote, in other words, we are not impressed because so few of us are dying. Overseas, the death tolls were unimaginable. A single paragraph in The Sun on Friday the 14th of March stated simply, London, Thursday night, Mr Montague, Secretary of State for India, stated in the House of Commons that deaths in India from influenza in 1918 were estimated at 6 million. As autumn began in Australia, the flu continued to smoulder in Sydney. There'd be 27 new cases one day, 17 the next, 26 the day after that. The city's hubris at having contained the plague began to fade. In the final week of March, more than 200 people were admitted to hospital and 12 died. Masks were again compulsory and theatres, libraries, schools and other public places were closed. The Peace Ball, slated to be Sydney's biggest social event since the outbreak of the Great War five years earlier, was cancelled amid fears it might help spread infection. The Royal Show was also cancelled. By the start of April, dozens of people were dying in Sydney every day, and hospitals were overflowing. In the week from the 8th to the 15th of April, 373 people died across New South Wales. 350 succumbed the following week. It's worth noting that these official death tolls were based only on those who died in hospital. As the crisis intensified, the New South Wales government's inconsistent policies put lives at risk. Blunder after blunder is how The Sun characterised it. First, the authorities mandated that all train travellers had to pass through inhalation chambers before boarding their carriages. Days later, this policy was abandoned, with these chambers now said to be at best useless and at worst dangerous to health. The state government put on special Easter excursion trains so people could get out of Sydney and into the fresh air of the mountains, coast and country. Then it cancelled the trains. Having made their travel plans, people went anyway, crowding onto ordinary train services to get to their holiday destinations. In early May, Smith's Weekly, the newly established populist newspaper, ran a front-page headline, A bewildered government creates a city of dreadful fright. Victoria, the newspaper claimed, had kept its head, refusing to shut down businesses or to make people wear masks. Smith's Weekly claimed that flunacy, its word for government restrictions, had cost £2.3 million. That's about $180 million today, in lost business in just 10 weeks. This economic slump threatened businesses, which threatened employment, which threatened families already on the breadline right when they most needed wages for food and medicine. Even worse, said Smith's Weekly, was that the government refused to pay state employees who were sick with the flu, while also promoting an official policy that those who were infected should stay home, take to their beds, and not return to work until they were well. What that meant was thousands of state government employees who caught the flu kept going to work to earn money to support their families, weakening themselves and infecting others in the process. Outside of Sydney, regional cities and towns were also suffering. One of the hardest hit was Lithgow, the small coal mining hub west of the Blue Mountains, 
With a population of 14,000, the town had 1,500 serious cases, and 141 of those people would die. Wagons piled with coffins made their way to the undertaker. In the gloom of Lithgow Cemetery, priests and ministers presided over funerals all day until dark. Then, in May, Sydney and New South Wales again looked on the road to recovery. The state's weekly death toll dropped from 176 to 123, then to 85 and 68. Incredibly, although people were still dying, restrictions were eased again and the Peace Ball went ahead at Sydney's Town Hall on the 5th of June. 1,800 tickets were sold, snapped up by the city's best, brightest and most beautiful, many in the 20 to 40 age group most susceptible to infection. In the coming weeks, anecdotal reports suggested that the Peace Ball had accelerated the flu. The Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate said a single Sydney doctor had treated 400 new cases in the two weeks after the ball. Brisbane's Daily Standard, meanwhile, reported Sydney's medical practitioners estimated there had been 3,000 people at the ball. Presumably, this number included workers, of whom some 2,000 were now infected. While it's impossible to know exactly the role the Peace Ball played in spreading the disease, it did coincide with the worst wave of the flu to hit Sydney and New South Wales. The weekly state death toll rose sharply, from 91 to 146, to 372, to 770. In the last week of June, 874 people died in New South Wales, an average of 125 per day. July was barely less brutal, putting another 1,600 people in their graves. Through the rest of winter, the flu would gradually burn itself out so that by mid-September, few deaths were being recorded in Sydney, New South Wales and the rest of Australia. At the end of 1919, official figures were released, saying there had been just over 12,000 deaths Australia-wide. Modern estimates that try to account for deaths outside of hospital put that figure around 20% higher, so 15,000 people. Just over half died in New South Wales, which was the state hardest hit by the epidemic. As deadly as the Spanish flu appears today, Australia really did get off lightly, with the death toll representing about 0.3% of our population. But things were very different if you were Indigenous. Shamefully, newspapers in New South Wales and other states seldom reported Aboriginal flu deaths. When they were mentioned, it was to say, for instance, that three more natives had died in New South Wales' Stony Creek camp and many other blacks were seriously ill. Even more shamefully, these fatalities weren't added to the official New South Wales state death toll. In Queensland, Baramba Aboriginal Reserve a settlement for Indigenous people removed from their tribal lands was hit hard. Here's how the end of the outbreak there was reported by Brisbane newspaper The Daily Mail on the 27th of June, 1919. There are a few of the patients still rather weak, but they are convalescing satisfactorily. It is apparent that apart from the heavy mortality, 83 deaths in a settlement of 600-odd souls, the outbreak had a good effect in that it resulted in a general clean-up, improved sanitation and more care being exercised in the accommodation of the natives. 
Modern historians actually record 87 deaths at Baramba and another 39 people died of other causes in this period. All 126 people, that's more than 20% of the settlement's total population, were buried in mass graves. Other Indigenous communities were reported to have suffered mortality rates of up to 50%. White Australians were far more likely to survive the Spanish flu than people in other countries. Three months of successful federal quarantine contributed, as did state government policies which, while haphazard, were better than nothing. Other factors also played a part. The strains of flu that reached Australia weren't as deadly as those that ravaged much of the rest of the world. Evidence of this is found in the infection-to-death rate. Worldwide, it's thought that 500 million people caught the Spanish flu, of whom 50 to 100 million died, which is between 10 and 20%. In Sydney, the hardest hit Australian city, some 290,000 people were infected and perhaps 5,000 died, which is less than 2%. This relatively low death rate could also be explained by inoculation, which while of questionable efficacy, was widespread. The initial outbreak also started in the warmer months, helping to limit its spread. What's hardest to quantify are the lasting effects of Spanish flu. Even people who survived serious bouts of influenza often did so with weakened bodies that would cut short their lives. Survivors also suffered increased incidence of mental illness. And according to John M. Barry's definitive book, The Great Influenza, it was the after-effects on one particular flu survivor that led to the epidemic's greatest and most tragic legacy. Through the first half of 1919, Spanish flu was reported in Australian newspapers at the same time as the Paris Peace Conference. These talks held at Versailles and attended by our Prime Minister Billy Hughes, were to ensure a lasting peace so that the Great War really would be the war to end all wars. But British Prime Minister Lloyd George, and particularly French leader Georges Clemenceau, wanted Germany declared guilty and subjected to punitive measures such as demilitarisation, ceding of territory and colonies, and crippling financial reparations. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, was staunchly opposed to this plan. He advocated a peace without victory and was so against making ordinary Germans suffer that he threatened to leave the conference, which he criticised as a council of war. Then, in early April, President Wilson became seriously sick with Spanish flu. He was bedridden for days and recovered a changed man, his closest aides noting he had strange ideas and that he seemed mentally and physically depleted. British Prime Minister Lloyd George even commented on what he called the American leader's nervous and spiritual breakdown. Abruptly, this very different President Wilson reversed his previous position and agreed that Germany should be punished. Thus, the harsh Treaty of Versailles was signed and the seeds for Adolf Hitler's rise were sown. Almost 20 years to the day after the Spanish flu was beaten in Australia, we would again be at war with Germany.
A century on from the Spanish flu, the quarantine station at North Head in Sydney is a tourist attraction, offering boutique accommodation, fine dining and even ghost tours. Visitors can see the big autoclaves, the ledgers recording the deaths of the afflicted and even the carvings made on sandstone cliffs by those quarantined. Perhaps the starkest of these carvings is the fluttering flag that simply reads Niagara, Influenza 1918, near the pier where the first flu sufferers came ashore. Not far away, in one of the cemeteries, Annie Egan's tombstone is one of the stops on the historical tour. Meanwhile, modern scientists are continually grappling with the very real possibility that another deadly influenza could emerge. This one perhaps carried all across the globe by passengers on jets before the alarm has even been raised. I'm Michael Adams. You've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, Australia, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends. Head over to ForgottenAustralia.com for more episodes and information and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram using the handle at ForgottenOzPodcast. And look out for my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is the story of Australia's forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. It's published by Hachette in January 2019 and it's available wherever you get your books. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.